We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Media Giant Effect. I'm excited to welcome uh, my special co-host, Royal Doc Allen, Lindemann Doc. What's going on? I know you're excited about co-hosting with me today. We are very excited. Diane and I are happy here. And, and how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. And our guest today is Dr. Edwin Leap. He's an emergency room doctor. And we're going to talk about our topic today is rural health care and defining rural health care. Uh, Dr. Uh, Leap, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Uh, great. Well, thank you for having me. All right. So let's talk about it. Well, and let Doc ask the first question about rural health care to Dr. Leap. Well, Dr. Leap, you had sent an email to me about some of the things you wanted to talk about. Uh, I know that you're an ER doctor and have been an ER doctor in many places, and you have a lot of experience with rural health care. And uh, your dad was a minister. So That's right. anyway, uh, I enjoy your articles. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, you know, you want to talk about uh, emergency medicine and why the uh, why the waiting list is, is eight hours and why people get tired of sitting in the waiting rooms. Um, and so just tell us a little bit about those things which are close to you. Well, right now, you know, even before COVID, um, small hospitals were struggling a lot. There just weren't enough physicians, enough nurses, enough beds. And, and as you know, uh, rural hospitals have closed at an alarming rate over the last few years. Uh, and it, it, it's harder and harder for them to function and to stay financially um, uh, solid. So as that's gone along, it, it got propped up a little bit during COVID because it was federal money. And now that that's going away, these hospitals are struggling in a way I've not seen in my entire 29 years of practice. Um, hospitals don't have enough inpatient beds. And part of that is a nursing shortage. And part of it is a physician shortage. And part of it is just money for these small facilities. And so not only do they not have beds, they don't have specialists. They don't have even often things as simple as obstetricians or surgeons. Um, not that simple, but I mean, it's fundamental, I should say. And so people come to these facilities and have complicated problems. And then they they find they can't be admitted to their local hospital because there are no beds or, or physicians or nurses. And then when we try to transfer them to a larger center, those facilities have no beds either, all right? So we find ourselves stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea here. These people may have you know, aortic aneurysm, they may have ectopic pregnancy, they may have sepsis or, or vascular occlusion. They simply can't go anywhere because there's no beds at the other facility and Frequently, there's not enough ambulances to transport them. So people in these small towns and small communities are really hurting. And this is true of relatively medium-sized rural communities, and even especially the um, what we call critical access hospitals, which by definition have to be about 30 miles from a larger center to, be, to have that designation and, and that sort of funding. So during the, during the pandemic and even after that, I find myself often in small hospitals holding very sick patients that can't be admitted locally and can't be transferred. And that's bad for the patient. And it's really stressful for the nurses and physicians who care for them. And this is not just me. Uh, I, I wrote something about this recently about how many we were holding in our hospitals. And I said, we're holding 23 patients in a 26-bed ER. And people wrote back to me and said, we're holding 40 in a 20-bed. We're holding 60 in a 30-bed. This happens all the time. They're holding far more patients waiting for admission or transfer than they even have beds for. They're, they're in a hallway bed. And so when people come to be seen there, your waiting room time is going to be six, eight, 12 hours 
on a good day just to be seen. And that's not even, uh, that's not even getting your workup done or getting admitted or transferred. That's just sitting in the waiting room. And what we do know about waiting rooms is that people often get tired and leave the waiting room. But according to research on that, they often get tired and leave because they're really, really sick. It's easy to say, well, they weren't that sick. They actually were. They might have had a heart attack. They might have had pneumonia. They might have said, I just can't be here any longer since I think it's better to be homesick than in the ER. And so they leave and bad things happen. So we know that all-cause mortality is up across the country you know, since COVID. Uh, and and this, is, this is devastating. It's getting worse. And it's getting worse in these places that are small hospitals, not only because of medical illnesses, but because addiction to drugs and alcohol depression, suicidality, these things are going through the roof. So small communities are really stuck. No, so what is going to, how can you fix that problem? You know, with our healthcare system, to get more doctors to go become certified to be doctors, getting more nurses, better recruiting. What can you do to help this rural healthcare problem? Really? Well, well, I think one of the things we can do is is try to fund these hospitals in a way that returns control to local communities. So one of the problems is with large corporations buying small hospitals, they'll buy them and, and then maintain them for a couple of years and divest themselves of them, but they don't really have a vested interest in them, right? I've seen this happen. So the large system buys a small hospital, takes away all its resources. They'll take their surgeon, they'll take their obstetrician and say, you guys aren't busy enough to have that. If you have a problem, just send it to us. And then we try to send it, they won't take it because they're, 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 they're full also. So I think it's, it's a problem that goes up and down the line. We need more doctors and nurses in these small facilities. They need to be funded appropriately to stay open because these are citizens who deserve the same care as people in urban areas get every day. You know, So we need people who go there, people who work there, and we need these jobs to be um, humane jobs where people aren't completely stressed out of their mind working there. I think one of the things these small hospitals should do is offer some litigation protection for people who work in them, because you do take a risk. These are things uh, you might face problems you simply can't fix, and you're worried about being sued. So many times physicians won't go to those places because they have fewer resources. And that's probably true of nurses as well. So we need to make it a more um, amicable place to work that's not so stressful, but we've got to build more hospitals. These places, even if they're small ones, there's been talk of uh, what we call micro hospitals, maybe in the ER and just a couple of inpatient beds just to hold people. We have to have something like that. And I think about the Pony Express in the old days where we need transit points to get people to larger centers because right now they just can't get anywhere. So better staffing, better funding, and more facilities. And of course, that's, everybody says the same thing, right? We need more money. That's, that's, a, that's the standard response, but it's just true. You can't abandon an entire segment of the population uh, to their to their illnesses and injuries, and pretend like they don't exist. Well, I certainly agree with you as far as litigation goes. You know, this is something I've been thinking about for about twenty years. It would really be just a flip of the uh, legislative switch to make mm. this a reality for small hospitals. It would have to be, I suppose, state by state, possibly federal government, but it would be an easy thing to do. And it would it would encourage many doctors who presently uh, feel threatened or don't want to put up with the added litigation you get, you might get from a small town. We here, uh, I'm retired now, I'm 75, and I've been retired for a year, but I've got about 50 
two years of medicine under my belt. So I've seen a right. lot of things, you know, changes, a lot of come coming and going. But, you know, we live in a town, well, we live in the country, actually, in the real country. Our county has the least density in North Dakota. It's two people per square mile. Our little okay. town is 650 people, and our little hospital is 25 beds, but about 15 of those are long-term. So, you know, oh, yeah. we can still probably uh, maybe five to eight patients, and we have a two-room two ER. Mm -hmm. So um, we can get busy. And like you, you know, one of the big problems we have is the person who comes in at 2 o'clock on Saturday morning this is a real difficult time to get anybody transferred, especially mm -hmm. people who have a psychiatric condition. You know, right. I can sit on the phone for six hours calling 12 hospitals and nobody wants to take them. Right. It's lonely. And the other thing that we're noticing is these are not just adult psychiatric patients. These are pediatric psychiatric patients who are suicidal and depressed and psychotic. And it's even harder to find beds for them. No one will take them, you know? And so they'll, they'll, they'll be stuck for days to weeks in the, in the same ER. Yeah, I know it's very difficult. We have something here. We have this uh, telemedicine in our ER. And mm -hmm. sometimes that is a little bit helpful for the dealing mm -hmm. with the psychiatric patients. But still, sure. that can take uh, four or five hours uh, just on right. the uh, computer screen to even just to get some kind of a diagnosis, and that is not right. necessarily a transfer. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a, it, it is a, it is rough. Um, I mean, I can't and, believe and that's that exactly that's not, it's not coming out, Dr. Leaf. Finding about, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about no. how, because people don't talk about this. So you're telling me the deep pockets of corporate companies are taking over the healthcare systems and, the, and the, even the smaller hospitals and are not staffing them correctly. It sounds like that's one of the big problems. Right. So, so they take them over and they just, the, 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 old, the old idea was, well, we'll take all the cases, right? They, so the big hospitals, they want procedures. So send us your procedures and your sick patients because that'll help them fund it. But when they can't take them, then they have they hurt because they took what we had to begin with and offered us nothing else. You know, I worked in one small hospital that used to have a very, uh, very uh, aggressive surgeon and an obstetrician. The, the big facility took them over. They took them. So suddenly, this hospital up on a mountaintop had nothing. And this is, this happens everywhere. Uh, obstet obstetric care is a big problem right now in rural America. People have to go hours to get obstetric care sometimes. Yeah, it's a real headache because, well, especially here in North Dakota, you know, when it's uh, January and February, you can have 20 and 30 degrees below zero. And we've got sure. pregnant patients having to drive through a blizzard uh, 80 miles to get to the next hospital. So right. these are very life-threatening uh, conditions that we have to face here. Sure, sure. I mean, I recall during COVID when I had a patient with a with a suspected ectopic pregnancy, a tubal pregnancy, Neil, and that can be life threatening. And I had mm. no way to transfer her to an obstetrician. Okay, so I had her husband put her in a private car and take her. That was the only option I had. Yeah. Do you think this is happening in big cities as well, Doctor Leap? Does it happen in big cities? Yeah. Well, I suspect it does. Sort of the periphery of them. I mean, I should I shouldn't. Uh, be too cruel to those who I'm not trying to be unkind. The big cities struggle too. I mean, 
Atlanta recently, they used to have two trauma centers and one of the trauma centers closed. So imagine Atlanta right now with only one trauma center where they had two. So the people who work in those places are also being crushed. They're overwhelmed with volume because not only do they have their own catchment area, but they have guys like me calling from North Carolina or South Carolina saying, can I send you my patient? Because I've got nothing. So I, so it, it, it all flows in the same direction. It's just that we have, we have fewer things out in the hinterlands than they have there, but they're almost just as overwhelmed as we are. Well, how have you been doing with COVID? You know, we've been living with that now for three years. And uh, actually, I was kind of lucky because I walked around with Alpha for about a year and a half and I never caught it. Um, right. But some of these people we just couldn't send because the hospitals were full. Everybody was full. That's right. You know, right now, COVID is actually doing pretty well for, for me. I mean, we're not seeing a ton of very sick COVID patients. Um, but during the height of it, it was a, it was horrible. I mean, because people had not only did they have respiratory failure, but they had high oxygen requirements. So, so you know, someone who had a regular pneumonia might need four liters of oxygen per minute. These people needed like 60, 80, 90 liters per minute. And so I remember a child that, that we saw who had multiple other illnesses that we tried to transfer him, and we couldn't fly him because the aircraft couldn't carry enough oxygen. And, that, and we don't think about that sort of logistic thing. I think the problem in America is we've always, we've always sort of operated under this idea that we have largesse, that we have enough of everything. We'll always have more. And COVID suddenly reminded us that we had not really enough of anything. Uh, and, and when that hit, we, we couldn't, we were, there weren't enough ambulances. I remember one, that, that one child, we, we tried to fly him by, by rotary wing and they couldn't fly him. Then we tried fixed wing, but all the fixed wing aircraft were tied up managing hurricane response in the Gulf. So we just don't have enough of the things we thought we had, you know. And honestly, COVID, for all that it was bad, had a pretty pretty low mortality as pandemics go. Uh, and, and I worry about what happens the next time when it's actually 5%, you know, 10%. You look back right. historically at plague with 50% mortality. You know, what do you do with that? I think you dig a lot of graves, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, we had not a lot of trouble with our COVID here. It was really, we were pretty lucky, and most of them were handled outpatient. I think one of the things that helped us was we saw everybody right away. We didn't make right. them stay at home for a week or two until they got really good and sick. So most of our outpatients stayed outpatient. Right. Well, that's good. Yeah. And we tried to do that also. We, we started at one place sending to a home on oxygen, and it was a really simple thing. You send them home with a, a, a couple oxygen tanks within a few days, they were better. Do you, do you see many people with COVID now in the hospitals again? No, it, it still it still comes in small ways, but nothing like before. From what I'm from what I'm seeing, where I'm working. All right, Doc. Any other questions you have for Doctor Leap? I can't think of anything right now. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. You know, we've been talking about problems of rural health, but. Um, if you could wave a magic wand in addition to getting uh, oh this uh, litigation thing straightened out, is there one thing you could think of doing that would help this? One thing is tough to say, but I think if I could wave my magic wand, that one thing would be to have medical schools and residencies recognize and work, recognize this as an issue and, and work towards encouraging people to go to these places. I mean, 
we have a cultural divide right now, and academic medicine is one of the places where it's most profound. So a lot of our new graduates will not go to these areas because A, the money's less, or B, this is a different culture, right? The, the, the people in rural areas have a different outlook. And yes, somehow I <laughs> that's, I think, considered out there or strange. So we don't go and hang around those people. And, and there, there's some wonderful residents who go to these places, but I feel like, I feel like the drift of academic medicine is very uh, urban and progressive. And we see that in medical school admissions committees right now and things like that. And if we don't correct that soon, we'll have a big dichotomy because people will not go to these places just because of cultural and ideological difference. Oh we can, if we could make this a big part of the education, medical education, I think it would make a difference. Well, I spent about 20 years trying to educate students and residents uh, to do obstetrics in rural areas. But it wasn't until I actually moved to a rural area to do obstetrics that I realized what most of the problems were. And certainly training these people is one thing. And of course, you're right, lifestyle is different. My wife and I like living rural uh, a lot. Right. We both come from rural and I'm just like, I've got 60 chickens out in my chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> and I give the eggs away. So, you know, I, I'm still a farmer at heart. So I don't think that's the real problem. I think that, you know, when I started trying to practice what I was teaching, I realized there were layers and layers of administration that stopped things. And one of the big problems was the uh, hospital boards who knew absolutely nothing about what it took to deliver babies safely in a rural hospital. Sure. So right. lots of education needs to be done on many levels. Yeah. And, and, and more, you can get more doctors in the schools, give the opportunity for more people to have the chance to be doctors and nurses. That means really pushing mathematics in schools and not just in the certain schools and really look at healthcare as still an option for people. Uh, to, right. to really bring something or else we're going to be, uh, there's going to be a huge shortage. Dr. Leap, is there a place that you, you, we can follow you, check you out and stuff like that? Absolutely. You can follow me on Substack uh, and my Substack column is called Life and Limb. And so I'd love for you to come by. I write a lot about these issues and other things. It'd be wonderful if you'd stop by my Substack. Do you write it? Do you have a book too? I have, you know, I did self-publish a couple of books over the years. I'm not even sure if they're available online right now. <laughs> I wish they were, but they, one was done by Lippincott, and it probably is, but I haven't put links up for a long time, but but, um, but I appreciate that. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, but probably the best place is to go to the Substack account right now. All right. We appreciate it so much. Thank you again, Royal Doc. All right, guys. Yeah, you're thanks listening. for having me. You're, you're Great welcome. Great to meet you guys. Yeah, all right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment.